The B-Rad Podcast is brought to you by MoFo, male optimization formula with organs to boost testosterone. Brad's macadamia masterpiece, mind-blowing nut butter blend, chili pad, temperature-controlled mattress systems, inside tracker, blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data all in one, and new optimal three nootropic supplements designed to improve focus, memory, and drive. And check out the bradkerns.com shop page, my personal selection of favorite products with great discounts for health, fitness, and peak performance. Bottom line is, you know, we're educating the public, but it's a very slow process, as you can imagine. It was slow educating the public about tobacco. You know, it was slow educating the public about opioids. You know, so educating the public about alcohol. When these eight are working for you, you'll be as healthy as anybody. When these eight are working against you, you're going to be sick as hell. Uh, I had no plan. Okay, I had absolutely no plan. And I will tell you, I didn't come with an agenda. This problem found me. All right. Sometimes, you know, problems find people rather than people finding problems. I want to tell you about Inside Tracker, an awesome new ultra personalized nutrition and lifestyle program that combines data from your comprehensive blood panels, genetic test results, and lifestyle and fitness data from a Fitbit, for example, and organizes everything into one super cool online portal of your personal health. I am just getting going with this, and it's awesome. It has everything in one spot. For every blood result, you can click on a blog post or watch a video to learn more about these values. It's a great education in general health and self-quantification, and it was developed by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometric data from MIT, Tufts, and Harvard. The patented Inside Tracker algorithm calculates your so-called inner age, and it shows each biomarker as either optimized, needs to improve, or at risk. And then you can take precise corrective action with a science-backed plan to reach your performance goals. Oh, mercy, people. On my first round of testing, guess what my inner age was? 62! Shocker! Because I just turned 56. I'm sorry. You know what? When I delivered that blood test, I believe I was a little overtired, and several of my biomarkers were deemed to be subpar. So I made some changes as directed. I recovered better, rested, went back, and delivered way better numbers at the next blood test. The Insight Tracker motto is change is an inside job and that is for real you got to keep tabs on this stuff to be at your best and they have an amazing deal just for brad podcast listeners they are going to give away a grand prize of fifteen hundred dollars in inside tracker value so to enter all you have to do is go to insidetracker.com slash Brad Pod, B R A D P O D. Check it out right now at the link and enter the contest. Hey, listeners, what an incredible honor it is to share with you my interview with the one and only Dr. Robert Lustig. He is a multi time best selling author, arguably or not arguably, the world's preeminent anti sugar crusader. 
His great books, Fat Chance, The Hacking of the American Mind, and the most recent one that we focus on is called Metabolical. And this guy swings for the fences, man. He is fighting a royal and fantastic battle against the mighty forces of uh, industrialized food and flawed government policy and trying to take down these big beasts. And for us, simplify this incredibly frustrating challenge of learning how to eat healthy, protect against disease, maintain, reach and maintain an ideal body weight. And he really does simplify it with some incredible one-liners and especially the insight. So this is kind of the gateway that I envision everyone must enter before they then go choose a diet or choose a side. And we've been so distracted by the wars between the whole food plant-based and over on the other side is the paleo and the carnivore message and one's better than the other. But he's trying to transcend and supersede all these by saying, look, the real enemy here is processed food. And it's the processed food that's killing us, that's setting us up for a lifetime of pain and suffering and disease. And all we have to do is unwind a little bit of the confusion and choose wholesome, real foods that meet his wonderful billboard criteria. And that is foods that protect the liver and feed the gut. And you're going to learn all about that. I wish you will focus intently on this guy's message and pay close attention. There's going to be uh, some scientific stuff that we have to wade into. Hopefully you can follow along with the discussion. And I do want to uh, tee you up here because early on, he mentioned several times about leptin and not hearing the leptin when he was talking about obese patients that he experimented with and had some amazing insights. And so leptin is the preeminent uh, satiety, fat storage, and reproductive hormones. One of the most important hormones in the body. It responds very closely to insulin signaling. And so when insulin is high, as with our adverse modern diet, it hampers the signaling of leptin to the brain. And so what that means is you're locked into a pattern of overeating and fat storage rather than energy balance. And so we want to optimize our leptin signaling. Very important. We write about it a lot uh, in the various books, uh, but that's coming right out of the gate with this insight about how the dysregulation of the hormone leptin, the preeminent satiety, fat storage, and reproductive function hormone, when that's dysregulated, guess what? A switch turns on and you become a glutton and a sloth. And the great quote from Gary Taubes, which I mentioned in the show that gluttony and sloth are not the causes of obesity. They are the symptoms of obesity. So hopefully that'll help you groove in here with the first part of the show and many more uh, incredibly brilliant insights from Dr. Robert Lustig, author of Metabolical. And go listen to my breather show where I discussed insights from his previous book called The Hacking of the American Mind. He's talking about sugar addiction and um, then expanding the conversation in hacking the American mind to many other dopamine triggering pathways that corporate forces are hitting us with, including social media, digital communication, and all kinds of other things. So good, good times with Dr. Robert Lustig. Here we go. Dr. Robert Lustig, what an honor. I can't wait to, to dive into this magnificent work, especially your most recent book, Metabolical. Uh, but how are you and how's the book release going? Uh, well, uh, how am I? Um, I have one word, COVID. <laughs> not, not because I have it, right. but because, you know, I'm just stuck, you know, here in my, you know, four walls. 
Well, I think a lot of your life's work has uh, been pointing toward this eventuality of people with poor metabolic health succumbing to these um, previously imaginary global pandemics. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough time. It is. And it's hard to watch. Um, you know, I am a great believer in public health. I'm a great believer in uh, people doing right, not just by themselves, but by others, that we have a responsibility to each other. And so, you know, what's going on today um, is just maddening and, uh, uh, you know, really, really uh, makes me very, very sad. Well, yeah, it's when you're when you're in the trenches like you are. Uh, you know, a lot of the book Metabolical has these shocking statistics that are so incredibly disturbing. And, you know, I think we can kind of breeze past these if we're not making this our life's work. But, oh boy, um, I think it's time to awaken to this. I think you did a wonderful and very comprehensive job, uh, especially um, fighting this massive battle against the great giants of industrialized food and also the government's contribution. So I want to talk about how this how this uh, how you came to to bear the arms and go into this battle from your your uh, lovely uh, probably previous life as a pediatrician seeing patients and going to medical school and, and dreaming of helping people right well so you know people ask me all the time Brad you know you know like how'd you get into this or you know did you have an agenda you know what what was what was your uh, you know modus operandi what was your plan uh, I had no plan. Okay, I had absolutely no plan. And I will tell you, I didn't come with an agenda. This problem found me. All right. Sometimes, you know, problems find people rather than people finding problems. Um, I majored in nutritional biochemistry in college. And so I guess I was set up in a way to be responsive, you know, to this debacle, you know, once it had occurred. Uh, back in 1975, when I learned nutritional biochemistry, you know, I learned that different foodstuffs were metabolized differently by the body. So I was very prepared to hear that. And then I went to medical school the next year in 1976. And they basically beat it out of me and said, you know, none of that matters. You know, all of that's theoretical or it's in animals or whatever. And we don't take care of patients that way. You know, it's just calories. And, you know, I was paying them a tuition bill, <laughs> you know, and these are the doctors. And so, you know, like I listened, you know, for better or worse, I listened. And so really for the first 20 years as a practicing physician, you know, in an academic institution, you know, so I had plenty of backup in terms of, you know, the medical and the dietary staffs, you know, it basically it was eat less exercise more, you know, this is the way you treat obesity and chronic disease. And none of my patients got better. Mm. Now, the standard thought when your patients don't get better is, well, they're non-compliant. You know, but I was having a real problem with children being perpetrators instead of victims, because I'm, I'm a pediatrician, and no mm -hmm. child chooses to be obese. Mm -hmm. And then the data started coming out about the fact that babies were being born with extra fat. Okay. We had a six month old obesity epidemic. Okay. And these, you know, babies don't choose what they eat. So this was, you know, sort of the cognitive dissonance that I was dealing with uh -huh. 
between, you know, what I learned, then what I went to medical school to learn, and then what I was experiencing. And, you know, none of it was making any sense. Mm. Now, in 1995, I moved from Madison, Wisconsin to Memphis, Tennessee, to become a faculty member at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. All right. And we had a cadre of 30 massively obese patients who actually started out completely normal weight, but then they got a brain tumor, Mm. a tumor in the hypothalamus, right in the middle of that energy balance pathway. And because of the surgery, you know, because of the tumor or because of the surgery, because of the radiation, didn't matter. These kids basically turned into beach balls and you know, the parents would basically, you know, cry, you know, at the, at the visits, you know, this is double jeopardy. My kid survived the tumor only to succumb to a therapy. And it was up to me to do something about it. So what do you tell them? Eat less, exercise more. (laughs) I mean, you know, these kids were normal weight before the tumor. So, you know, it wasn't genetic and it wasn't what their, you know, what their parents were feeding them before. And, you know, I mean, clearly there was some organic lesion going on here. Well, in 1994, just the year before I went to St. Jude, we discovered this hormone called leptin. Okay. It was discovered at Rockefeller University where I was a postdoc. So I knew about the hunt for it because, you know, all the MDs, all the doctors, at Rockefeller University, all knew each other because we all had to take call in the hospital. So Jeff Friedman and Rudy Leibel were the people who, you know, discovered leptin, cloned leptin from the um, from the leptin deficient mouse, the OB mouse. Huh. And so I knew both of them very well. And so I was, you know, hearing about all of this, you know, at research seminars for years. And then in 1994, they, you know, actually discovered it, published it in Nature. And then I was at St. Jude. And so I postulated that these kids, these 30 kids, they couldn't see their leptin. Clearly, they had leptin before. They have leptin now, but because of the tumor, now they couldn't see it because those neurons were dead. And so if you can't see your leptin, what does your brain see? Your brain sees starvation. It acts like there's no leptin, which means that you have no fat cells, which means you don't have any adiposity on board, which means you're starving. And so what happens when you're starving? Well, we knew that. You eat more and you exercise less. And so I postulated way back when, in 1995, that these kids' obesity was because they couldn't see their leptin. Well, that's all well and good, but then what are you going to do about it? So I went to the literature, and I knew about this model you know, from my own work as a neuroendocrinologist. I knew that if you lesion the hypothalamus in a rat, they become massively obese. And one of the things that goes along with that is enormously high insulin levels, insulin being the diabetes hormone, the energy storage hormone. So the assumption was that because these animals were releasing so much insulin, that's what was driving all everything they ate into fat and causing them to gain and gain and gain and gain. And that these kids were basically the same thing. So I postulated, I guess, you know, this was one of my first major contributions. I, I believe I have two major contributions to the, to the literature. This is one. I 
assumed that the insulin was the driver of their weight gain. And if we could block their insulin release, we could potentially stop the weight gain. So there was a drug at my disposal that was used for other reasons called octreotide, which can inhibit insulin release at the level of the pancreas. So we put together a clinical research study, you know, IRB approval, you know, like, like you do. And we took eight of these kids and basically did an open label trial. And lo and behold, they all did better. Hmm. You know, of, of the eight, you know, I mean, they stopped gaining weight and actually started losing weight. But something even more remarkable happened. These kids started exercising spontaneously. Okay. These were kids who sat on the couch, ate Doritos and slept because their brains thought they were starving. And now, because we got their insulin down, they're actually being active. One kid became a competitive swimmer. Two kids started lifting weights at home. One kid became the manager of his high school basketball team. Yeah. These were kids who were lumps on a log. These, this, this is what the parents were most upset about was, you know, they, after we started treating them with the medicine, they said, I got my kid back. And the kid would say, this is the first time my head hasn't been in the clouds since the tumor. So this was a really big deal. So this notion that they would start exercising because their insulin was low was huge. So we did a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, and we put in a quality of life questionnaire to assess this. And sure enough, the lower we got their insulin, the more active they were and the better their quality of life. So what this proved to me and what this, you know, sort of, you know, I, I wrote a paper about it in 2006. Um, basically, what this said was that we've got the first law of thermodynamics completely opposite. So the standard mantra amongst all the establishment is if you eat it, you better burn it or you're going to store it. Mm-hmm. That's how the first law of thermodynamics is interpreted. I mean, the law itself says the total energy inside a closed system remains constant. That's what the law says. But the interpretation on the law is if you eat it, you better burn it or you're going to store it. What I said was that's wrong. What it should be is if you're going to store it, that is an obligate weight gain set up by forces out of your control, such as high insulin, and you expect to burn it. That is normal energy expenditure for normal quality of life. Then you're going to have to eat it. And now the two behaviors that we associate with obesity, gluttony and sloth, are actually secondary to a primary biochemical problem, that this is biochemistry, that the behavior is secondary to the biochemistry. Now, I have now looked at this question throughout my career in so many different ways from Sunday. And every single time, it's the biochemistry. Now, sometimes we're smart enough to figure it out, sometimes we're not. But to blame the victim, which is what we have been doing, does not explain obese newborns. 
<laughs> they're they're uh, they, they're spared the uh, the scrutiny. But I love how in the book you redirect the focus to the profit-seeking enterprises that uh, that get to blame the victim so that they don't get regulated by the government and continue to dispense this this processed food. And boy, is that a slippery slope because once we start integrating this stuff into the diet, we become the the slovenly glutton. Uh, but I love how you characterize that backwards. I hope the listeners can uh, to, can can stay with us here because, um, like Gary Taub said, those are symptoms of obesity, not causes. I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot-style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. Exactly right. So ultimately, the only way to treat a problem is to treat its cause. Treating well, there's the other ways. They just don't work, but they make a lot of money for the drug companies. Indeed. Okay, so let's talk about treating the cause. Right. Well, the cause is the high insulin. Okay. So what we've been doing at my obesity clinic at UCSF since its inception, since we started it in 2003, is get the insulin down, not lose weight. Okay. Because weight loss doesn't work. <laughs> and, you know, everybody's got the data to show that that approach does not work. All right. What we did was said, get the insulin down any way you can. And how do you do that? Well, don't let it go up. So what's the, what's, what, what makes insulin go up? Two things, only two things, refined carbohydrate and sugar. So 
what does a high refined carbohydrate, high sugar diet look like? USA, baby. Starbucks, McDonald's. That is the Western diet. Yeah. Okay. So what we realized, what we realized, you know, in terms of all of the work that has, you know, come since, you know, 25 years of work is that basically what happened was we transitioned from an ancestral diet, which was low sugar, high fiber. And that ancestral diet could be a carnivore diet. It was still low sugar, high fiber, or it could be a hunter gatherer diet. It was still low sugar, high fiber. Either way you want to look at it, it was still low sugar, high fiber. We transitioned from this ancestral diet to our modern diet. And when did we do it? We did it well, it started in the 1920s, but really picked up speed in 1970 or so. And then in 1975 was the introduction of high fructose corn syrup, which made sugar cheap. And then in 1977, we had the first dietary guidelines for Americans, mm-hmm. which said, eat less fat. Mm-hmm. Well, if you eat less fat, that means you have to eat more of something else, more carbohydrate. So it was these things that basically, you know, transitioned us into the modern diet and now our, you know, epidemic of chronic metabolic disease. And amazingly, you're quoting timelines in the 70s and and 80s and whatnot. Uh, But here we are in 2021. And I'm wondering, I know we have big machines here in place, but uh, for example, putting the spotlight on your peers who are in a great place to dispense dietary advice, uh, but they still seem to be stuck in pre-1970 dogma that came from uh, manipulative forces, I suppose. Well, so, uh, you know, in, in the book, I take doctors to task. I take dietitians to task. I take dentists to that task. Okay. Nobody escapes unscathed. All right. I That's got a what we like pick. about you, man. You're, you're, you're free swinging and you oh, know, I am. someone I am. needs I'm, to do it. I'm an equal opportunity offender. No you're question. Gonna lose, you're going to lose all potential sponsors for your, your, uh, your, your brand and your billboard. Oh my goodness. I already have. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, obviously, you know, it, the message is getting out. The message is getting mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm very, very happy that the message is getting out. In fact, uh, just this coming Monday, uh, there will be a paper in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition that will support all of this. And that's a big so, milestone, I suppose, from what they've published to date. Well, you know, it, 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 it's, a, it's a conglomeration of a lot of scientists who were on the other side, but now are, you know, embracing this notion mm. that obesity is biochemical rather than behavioral. Mm-hmm. So very mm-hmm. excited about that fact. So, you know, bottom line is, um, you know, we're educating the public, but it's a very slow process, as you can imagine. It was slow educating the public about tobacco. You know, it was slow educating the public about opioids. You know, it was slow educating the public about alcohol. All right. And the reason why it was slow for all of these is, number one, we're talking about hedonic substances. And number two, we're talking about industries who were making money who didn't want things to change. So we had the dark forces and we also had 
our own reward center working against us. Well, for sugar, it's the same thing. We have our own reward system working against us because sugar is addictive, and we have the dark forces of big food. So should we expect anything different? No. The only thing that we've got going for us is, number one, we have an alternative. It's called real food. Problem is, that's not what the food industry is producing. Okay, but you can find it and you can buy it. That's number one. And number two um, is that uh, we're about seven or eight years into this. And so the information is starting to accrue. And people have seen, you know, the last 50 years, you know, this pandemic of chronic disease, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, polycystic ovarian disease, fatty liver disease, no matter what we throw at any of them, the prevalence and the severity just keeps going up. And Einstein's theory of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, we've been doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So that means we're insane. And the dietitians are the worst because they're the ones promulgating this notion of calories. And they've been watching for the last 50 years as calories hasn't fixed anything, but yet they're still dispensing the same calorie advice. And when the patient doesn't do well, their response is, well, they're non-compliant. Which I suppose they are because they're too tired and they're too well, hungry. Because, because they can't see their leptin. Right. So when you can't see your leptin, just like those kids, what do you expect? You become a glutton and a sloth. And the question is, what's causing them not to see their leptin? The answer is insulin. Insulin blocks leptin. Mm -hmm. That's when we, why when we get the insulin down, the leptin can work. And when the leptin works, then people of their own volition start eating less and exercising more. That's what we've shown. So the fact that the dietitians blame the victim is, you know, why they are insane. So you had that incredible drug intervention with the 30 more or the eight morbidly obese kids in well, Tennessee. Um, if we that did works it in so well. Too. So. Yeah. About 18% of the adult population responded the same way. Uh, so is this, there's no potential for this to be um, distributed well, in mass to people who refuse to uh, cut back on their Oreos or something? Right. So, so that is a very good question, Brad. And I'm going to tell you that that is one of the dark stains on this story. Um, so the drug was made by a pharmaceutical company called Novartis, which you've probably heard of. And Novartis sponsored a double-blind placebo-controlled trial to assess whether or not octreotide would work in adult obesity. Now, I knew from our previous work that the higher the insulin release, the better the drug worked, because after all, the drug's inhibiting release. They didn't want to do the testing to figure out who was who. They told me we would figure it out after the fact. They wanted to get as many patients into the study as quickly as possible. And so we didn't run those analyses. And then when we saw the results of how well they did over the six months of the trial, it was very clear that about 10%, 
maybe 15% of the patients did remarkably well, but there were a whole bunch of people that didn't. They just didn't respond? They, well, because they didn't have insulin secretion as the problem. They had insulin uh, resistance as the problem. And octreotide uh-huh. would only treat the insulin secretion problem. Right, right. right? It, was, it was targeted at a specific pathology and about 15% of the obese adults have this pathology. But some, you know, brilliant, you know, uh, uh, guy at Novartis decided, well, we don't want to have to screen people. Therefore, you know, because that's just too hard. So therefore, this isn't a good uh, uh, way to do business. And so they basically deep sixed it. And we never even got to run the insulin levels on the trial. Well, fortunately, there's a super easy way to reduce insulin uh, for free that you can start on tomorrow uh, for those interested. (laughs) And that would be um, going to your, I love your one liner here to solve all the diet wars in in one uh, swath of the pen where you say protect the liver and feed the gut. And that's the the benchmark for uh, sourcing real food and uh, deciding whether or not to eat it. But yeah, let's... Let's go there and, and talk about how, how easy and simple it would be for most people to get this disease pathology uh, turned in a, in a U-turn quickly. Right. So in the book, I basically, you know, ask the question, what's healthy? You know, so the FDA has its own definition of healthy, which is low in calories, low in saturated fat, high in vitamin D, high in potassium. Now, you think that's healthy? Really? Is that the spray bottle, vitamin D and potassium I don't, they put I don't on the cereal? Know. I don't even know. USDA doesn't even have a definition of healthy because if they did, then basically none of the foods could say that they were healthy on them. <laughs> so they, they're okay. keeping that one on the back burner. Right. So I offer you know, a, an empiric definition of healthy based on the science. And it is six words, two clauses protect the liver, feed the gut. If you protect the liver, the liver stays insulin sensitive. If the liver stays insulin sensitive, then the pancreas can make less insulin to make the liver do its job. If the pancreas makes less insulin, that means insulin levels all over the body fall. And if insulin levels all over the body fall, then there's no pressure on the fat cell to take up more energy and you actually have a chance to lose weight. So protect the liver. So the protect the liver from what? Answer, refined carbohydrate and sugar. Because those are the things that end up driving liver fat production in the liver. So the thing that is sort of, you know, front and center in this whole thing is what the liver does to extra energy. The liver can do two things with extra energy. One is it can make glycogen. Glycogen is liver starch. Liver starch is what powers marathon runners and why marathoners carb load before a race. And glycogen, for lack of a better word, is um, safe. So your liver can store as much glycogen as it needs to or wants, and it won't get into trouble. Now, glucose will go to glycogen. So starch will go to glycogen. Now, if you overload, 
you know, a little bit of it will turn into liver fat and that can be a problem. But, you know, in general, starch is not a big deal. However, this other molecule, fructose, the sweet molecule of sugar, that does not go to glycogen. It's also not insulin regulated. And the liver picks up all of it. You must know, go to the liver first, cannot be has burned. to go to the liver first because only the liver has the transporter for it. So when you consume a 20-ounce Coke, you are flooding your liver with fructose. And the fructose basically has no place to go but the liver. And so the liver gets overwhelmed and the mitochondria can't process it and turn it into energy. And so the mitochondria basically stop taking it in and the rest of the cell then turns that fructose, that sugar into fat. And then that fat has one of two fates. It can either be exported out of the liver as triglyceride. And, you know, that's a setup for heart disease and obesity, or it can precipitate in the liver as a lipid droplet. Now you have fatty liver disease and now you have insulin resistance and now you have your risk factors for type 2 diabetes, cancer, and dementia. So, so yeah. basically, once that liver decides to take that sugar and turn it into fat, you are screwed. <laughs> so stop that process. Well, are there any drugs that can stop that process? Not yet. So the only way to stop that process right now is limit the amount of sugar your liver sees, protect the liver. So that's so if number one. You have your soda, your 7-Eleven Slurpee. Oops, we just lost another sponsor. And then uh, a handful of healthy blueberries from the farmer's market. Uh, we're getting uh, fructose stacked on top of a, a high processed foods diet. And that's where the problem is. Or is there a distinction between processed fructose from the fructose and the blueberry? Well, so the first of all, the blueberry doesn't have much fructose in it. Okay, I mean blueberries are sweet, but you know they're not they're not a soda. Uh, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, fructose in them, but it's not very high. Fructose is so sweet it comes through anyway. Um, now the blueberry has something else though. It has fiber, and so that's number two in the you know cavalcade of of things you need to understand about this. The healthy. Okay, feed the gut. Well, what does the gut eat if you're going to feed it? And the answer is fiber. Now, fiber is the stuff you throw in the garbage when you juice the fruit, right? <laughs> All right. So fiber has no calories. So everyone assumed, well, fiber is useless. Fiber is just what comes along with the fruit. No, that's the mistake. Turns out, the fiber's not for you. The fiber is for your microbiome. The fiber is their food. So when you eat food, you're eating the food for you and you're eating the food for them because they got to live. Okay, you got 10 trillion cells in your body. You got 100 trillion bacteria in your intestine. Okay, they outnumber you 10 to one. Each of us is just a big bag of bacteria with legs. Now, they got to eat something. Well, what do they eat? Well, they eat what you eat. The question is, how much did you get versus how much did they get? And fiber makes sure they get what they need. 
because fiber is their food. <clears throat> so fiber does six, count them, six separate things in your gut that are all related to your body's metabolism and your metabolic health. Six, here they are. The fiber, and there are two kinds of fiber, soluble and insoluble. Soluble is like pectin or inulin, like what holds jelly together. Insoluble is like cellulose, like the stringy stuff in the celery. Okay, together, they form a gel on the inside of the intestine. You can actually see it on electron microscopy, All right? Imagine a fishnet. The water goes through the fishnet. But now imagine a fishnet that has a whole lot of kelp. Okay, now the water doesn't go through the fishnet because the kelp is blocking up the holes, All right? Well, that's what's happening in your intestine, okay? The um, insoluble fiber, the cellulose, sets up the latticework of the fishnet. The soluble fiber or globular, they plug the holes in the fishnet. And together they form this impenetrable barrier that reduces the rate of glucose, fructose, sucrose, simple starch absorption from the gut into the bloodstream so that you protect the liver. Okay. Now, if you only put soluble fiber in, like what the food industry does, like fiber one bars mm. or metamucil, you're actually not setting up that gel because you need the insoluble fiber and that's not what's there, okay? So that's the first thing. And what that does is that protects the liver. The second thing is because of that gel, because of the reduction in the rate of absorption, you keep your blood glucose from spiking too high. Okay, this is the concept of glycemic load. And that means your insulin response will stay down. And if your insulin response stays down, then you're not going to shunt sugar to fat. So that's number two. Number three, the food moves through the intestine and the microbiome will chew up what you didn't absorb early. So you're feeding your microbiome. Number four, the food moves through the intestine faster because the fiber gives it bulk. It kind of greases the skids, as it were. And so you end up getting to the end of the intestine faster. And there's a hormone that the end of the intestine releases called peptide YY, which then goes to the brain and tells your brain, hey, meal's over, I'm done, I'm satiated. That is your satiety signal. And it takes about 20 minutes to get from the um, stomach to the end of the intestine, which is why we always tell everybody, wait 20 minutes before second portions. Okay, give the food a chance to get there. But the more fiber in the food, the quicker it gets there, right? I mean, I mean, think about it. The brat diet, the bananas, rice, applesauce, toast diet that we give to kids when they have diarrhea, okay? The reason is because it's constipating because it's not moving the food through the intestine faster because there's no fiber in it. Okay, we've just, you know, that's, that's why it works to treat diarrhea is because it's constipating because there's no fiber, all right? So that's number four. Number five is the soluble fiber, the inulin, the pectins, et cetera. They get turned into short chain fatty acids. 
for short chain fatty acids like butyrate, propionate, acetate. These are actually immune modulating. They actually suppress your cytokine response, which it turns out to be extraordinarily important in COVID. And one of the reasons why um, ultra processed food consumption actually contributes to increased COVID mortality is because of the accelerated cytokine response. You wanna keep that cytokine response down, right? And uh, the soluble fiber does that. And then number six, the insoluble fiber will act as little scrubbies on the inside of your colon, getting rid of the cancer cells. Now, six separate things that the two fibers from real food do together. If you add soluble fiber, you only get two of them. Mm. No one can add back insoluble fiber because insoluble fiber is not miscible. But if you could, it would also only do two of them. You need all six. The only way to get it today is real food. So that's why you have to feed the gut. Protect the liver, feed the gut. You do that, and that's called real food, and your metabolic health will improve. Your insulin will go down. And if your insulin goes down, guess what? You lose weight. So that's the key to this whole obesity Simple as can be. Transcending the the diet wars on either side, the the, the vegans against the paleos and the carnivores. Uh, But if we just transition over to real food. Now, is there some concern about, um, you hear about getting excess fiber in the processed food diet, I suppose that's just that one kind that you're you're, you're cranking the Metamucil and and the processed products. Right. That's all they're doing is they're just adding Metamucil. They're adding, you know, uh, psyllium husk or, you know, pectin or something and that, and that won't do it. That just won't do it. And, you know, uh, Metamucil has tried, you know, uh, 50 ways from Sunday to try to get the FDA to approve health claims for Metamucil about, you know, lowering blood glucose and, you know, being a weight loss. Uh, And the bottom line is the data just aren't there. Hey, man, how's your sexual function? Oh, uncomfortable talking about it? Look, we talk about our injured knees, our belly fat. So it's time to get focused on function. I want to tell you about Gainswave. This is a cutting edge protocol where a handheld device sends low intensity shock waves into your penile blood vessels to stimulate a healing response and promote increased blood circulation and the growth of new blood vessels. A skilled practitioner puts the Gainswave magic wand onto your magic wand, and after a series of 6 to 12 very brief treatments, which are painless but extremely effective, you get real results. Gainswave reports an 80% success rate. Now, we know that popping pills is a popular penile protocol, but when you're working with clogged pipes, you just get a temporary Band-Aid effect when you take prescription drugs. Gainswave addresses the cause of age-related decline by stimulating growth factors and activating dormant stem cells. Translation, stronger, harder, more sustainable erections. I learned about Gainswave from my podcast guest, Dr. Judson Brandeis at the Brandeis MD Clinic in Northern California, and there's a robust network of Gainswave providers that you can find on their website near you. Complete a series of treatments, and the beneficial effects will last for a long time, especially if you eat and exercise well to promote overall vascular health. 
It's a tune-up for your equipment. And while it's great for ED, Gaines Wave is for any man that wants to combat the effects of aging and get a little boost for your A-game. So please visit GainesWave.com Brad. That's G-A-I-N-S-W-A-V-E dot com slash B-R-A-D to find a practitioner in your area. And you can take advantage of my special promotion. Buy six treatments and get one free. You have nothing to lose and lots to gain from gainswave.com slash Brad. Let's talk about nootropics. These are supplements designed to improve cognitive function, memory, and creativity. And I'm taking three products from a company called New Optimal, N-U Optimal. The products are Metafocus, which promotes flow state and improves processing speed and mental clarity. It contains ingredients like phenylalanine, B12, ginkgo biloba. I'm taking Metamemory, which is good for memory retention, verbal fluency, reduced oxidative stress. Very important for the brain. This product has things like lion's mane, pine bark, and bacopa. And I'm taking Metadrive for motivation, stress resilience. It's got a little boost of caffeine in there, ashwagandha, rhodiola. They're wonderful products with a lot of scientific detail and easy to understand information on their website. So you get the big picture of what these products are all about, not just stuffing pills down your face, but how to do the stack as they call it strategically. You get a 16 page booklet that'll guide you to optimal use when you purchase. And guess what? 60 day money back guarantee and 30% discount from me. Listen, I'm not a coffee guy. I'm not a drug guy, but I'm always looking for any type of natural edge I can get, especially for cognition. So guess what? Let's avoid that sugary junk food. Let's get enough sleep. Take a power nap when you need one and consider trying some nootropics to see if you get a natural brain boost. So go visit newoptimal.com, N-U-O-P-T-I-M-A-L and enter the code BRAD30 to get 30% discount when you try it. Newoptimal.com for way more details. On the other side, we hear from, uh, let's say, carnivore advocate uh, testing out your sensitivity to plants and, and going with the emphasis on the nutritious animal foods where uh, comparatively, we're not getting much fiber. But do we have to go looking for mountains of high fibrous food or where's that sweet spot where if we just choose natural process, uh, unprocessed foods, we'll be okay? Um, you know, basically... Look at all the diets that work. Okay. There are a whole bunch of diets that work. Okay. And they stretch across the gamut. All right. We have, you know, keto and carnivore and, uh, you know, paleo and uh, uh, traditional Japanese and Mediterranean and, you know, sugar busters for that matter and 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 zone and ornish and uh i forgot atkins throw atkins in there um and you know finally all the way to you know um uh unprocessed vegan all right so we have things that are high fat low carb and we have things that are low fat high carb okay every diet that i just mentioned works So it's not the carb or the fat. They all work. So what do those diets have in common? They all are real food. Now, 
as it turns out, you can do keto wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. Keto is a good diet. I'm not against keto. I'm for it. We used it in our own patients at UCSF when we needed to in the right patient. So I'm not against it. I don't think everyone needs to be on it. You know, I don't think everybody has to go to that extreme. But here's the problem with keto. Even a little bit of carbohydrate will suppress insulin. Oh, sorry, oh, sorry, will stimulate insulin. My mistake. Even a small amount of carbohydrate in the diet will stimulate insulin. And if you stimulate insulin, you then stop the ketosis. Mm-hmm. And if you stop the ketosis, now, instead of being on a ketogenic diet, what you're on is a high-fat, medium-carbohydrate diet, which is the single worst diet you can be on. Mm. So unless you are absolutely fastidious and measuring your ketones, either with urine or breath, consistently, okay, I can pretty much guarantee you that within two months, you're not even on the keto diet anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay, Only the truly um, committed can manage a ketogenic diet for any length of time. Now, that doesn't mean that people can't do it. They can. God knows they can. But, you know, the, shall we say, weekend warrior type, you know, who are just going to do this because it sounds like a good idea, they're, they're going to be falling off the wagon, you know, imminently. Inadvertently, too, sometimes. And just right, from, and they won't even know. And yeah. they won't even, so, this is, so this is the problem with keto. The problem with vegan is much easier to explain. Coke, Doritos, and Oreos are <laughs> vegan. Okay, so vegan, if it's going to work, means unprocessed vegan. Processed vegan is the Western diet without meat. So that's that, you know, that's that's the bottom line. So, you know, you want to do it one way. uh, Fine. I don't care. You want to do it the other way. That's fine, too. You know, individual people will end up gravitating toward one or the other, and presumably one will work better based on your own biochemistry than the other, and there are ways to figure out who you are. And I actually have that in chapter nine of the book, is to figure out who you are. Um, But I'm agnostic as to which diet is better for any individual person, right? And I'm not here to, you know, fan or flame the diet wars. You know, the, 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 the problem is the vegans and the ketos actually have more in common with each other than they can possibly imagine. And really their enemy, mm. you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, okay, is the process, you know, the CPG companies. That's who they should be fighting with, not with each other. Right. Taking our eye off the ball and, and getting uh, confusion into the, the listener's mind rather than this unified force against the processed foods is a great a great starting point for all diets, the, the lustic gates of entry, and then you can come in and, and drift around and go experiment with what works for you. But uh, it, it seems as simple as eliminating those, those processed foods. Oh, well, it's not so simple. That's the problem. It, because basically what it means is you're going to get rid of, you know, more than 75% of what's in the store. Right. right. It's not so simple. You're going to be wandering around. Indeed. So, you know, now, there are ways to do it, and I'm actually working with a company. I'm the chief medical officer of a company that will help people do this routinely and not, and without having to even read a label, because it'll already have read the label for you. It's called Perfect, 
P-E-R-F-A-C-T. You can find it online. And basically, we're working, we're actually uh, helping an international food conglomerate completely re-engineer their entire portfolio to be metabolically healthy, stem to stern, start to finish. Everything will basically um, be metabolically healthy when we are done with it by adhering to these principles. Seems like a good opportunity, especially for a big player to come out strong and saying, look, now you can actually trust us. Sorry about the last hundred years of well, cereals and Pop-Tarts and whatnot. That's why I'm helping them. I'm, oh, by the way, I'm not, not taking any money for it. Um, you know, that would be a conflict of interest. So I don't take money for it. I'm doing it, you know, out of the goodness of my heart. Uh, but the bottom line is, uh, if one international food conglomerate can do it, then maybe a second one or maybe a third one, you know, and then if there's pressure on them, you know, to do so, you know, that's how you ultimately affect global societal change. Uh, so back to that association with consuming refined carbohydrates and spiking insulin, there's also some talk about the role of refined industrial seed oils in contributing to insulin resistance sure. because they hamper your fat burning ability. Where does that fall in? So pretty much all of those seed oils are omega-6s. And omega-6s are pro-inflammatory. And inflammation drives insulin resistance. So it's, you know, omega-6s are necessary. It's not that they're not necessary. They are necessary. They are pro-inflammatory and you need inflammation, okay? You know, you need inflammation to, you know, basically take care of viruses or, you know, I mean, if we didn't have inflammation, we'd all be eaten by the maggots. You know, <laughs> you, know you have to have an, an inflammatory response. But the question is, what kind, how often, and, you know, is it going on at baseline? And it turns out that the more omega-6s you consume, the higher the baseline inflammatory response. And the reason is because omega-6s are the precursor of arachidonic acid. Now, arachidonic acid is the precursor of prostaglandins and leukotrienes and, um, you know, uh, you know pro-inflammatory molecules. And so we're supposed to consume omega-6s, but we also have to consume the opposite. We have to consume the uh, uh, compounds that actually suppress inflammation called omega-3s. Omega-3s are absolutely essential for normal brain functioning. They are part of the neuronal membrane and they keep uh, neurons from dying. And so they're very important in both depression and dementia. But omega-3s, where do you get those from? Wild fish and flax, but not very much. And to be honest with you, there's not a lot of omega-3s in most vegetarian or vegan um, uh, uh, items. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, people talk about eggs being a source of omega threes. Well, you know what? Processed eggs are not, you know, um, it, you know, farm for, I mean, pasture raised eggs. Yes. And the reason is because then the chicken eat the grass and the chickens, you know, I mean, they don't make the omega threes. They eat the omega threes. The fish don't make the omega threes. They eat the omega threes. Who makes the omega threes? Well, the algae. The plants make the omega-3s. The, the fish eat the algae. We eat the fish. So we get our omega-3s third hand, right? And the eggs, you know, yes, the truth. If the chickens eat the grass, then they have the uh, omega-3s. In the book, I actually have a picture. It's unfortunately black and white um, of two eggs, sunny side up, 
you know, frying in a skillet, one is a pasture-raised egg, and the other one is a factory egg. And the, and the pasture-raised egg is orange, and the factory egg is yellow. So yellow eggs are actually omega-3 light. Okay, you want to go omega-3 heavy, you need pasteurized eggs. But, you know, like, where do you get those? Yeah, they're more prevalent now, but it certainly is a big difference when you start to be selective. Same with your choices in the, the fish category, the meat category. And the meat category, right, absolutely. So, you know, this is why, you know, our current food system, our food business model has to be turned on its head because we are rewarding the food industry for poisoning us. That's what it comes down to. And sugar is the biggest poison of all. So here's my question to you, Brad, and to your listeners, your audience. Is sugar food? (laughs) Well, uh, yes or no? I, I guess I'd have to say no if you're talking about the the individual molecule, um, but it certainly is a component of real food, right? Well, it's calories, right? And calories constitute food. Uh, well, I guess that's debatable too. Well, it is debatable, actually. You're right. Um, the dietitians will tell you, you know, I mean, sugar is energy and, you know, food is, you know, I mean, that's what food is, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Garbage, 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 garbage. All right. What is the definition of food? Hmm. We've already talked about the definition of healthy. What is the definition of food? Answer, go to Webster's. And it is, I, I memorized it, a substrate that contributes to the growth or burning of an organism. Hmm. Okay. And I accept that. That's, that's a fine definition. So a substrate that can, that contributes to the growth or burning of an organism. Let's take burning first. What if a substrate actually inhibits burning? Like the seed oils. Well, no, no. I mean, seed oils can still be burned. They'll still be burned. But what it, What if a specific component of food actually inhibits mitochondrial function? Mitochondria, where the you know where, where the burning takes place. What if you actually inhibit mitochondrial enzymes? Turns out, sugar, fructose molecule inhibits three, count them, three separate mitochondrial enzymes. It inhibits AMP kinase, which is what turns mitochondria on and causes them to uh, divide and make more of them. <clears throat> it inhibits ACADL, acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain, which is the start of the fatty acid oxidation, the burning of fats. And finally, it inhibits CPT1, carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, which is the shuttle mechanism by which fatty acids get into the mitochondria in the first place to burn. So three separate enzymes being inhibited by one molecule. So if fructose is inhibiting burning, then we have to look at growth. So does sugar contribute to growth? 
And the answer is growth of cancer cells. <laughs> growth of the waistline. Well, yeah, but it does not contribute to growth. It actually inhibits growth. So my colleague, Dr. Efrat Monsenigo Ornan, who is the head of nutrition at Hebrew University, Jerusalem, just published a 27-page article in Bone Research demonstrating the mechanisms by which ultra-processed food, and specifically sugar, inhibit bone formation, bone growth. And we know that basically once you raise insulin, what you're doing is you're raising cancer potential. So you're actually increasing cancer risk. Mm -hmm. So sugar inhibits normal growth. It inhibits normal burning. So is sugar a food? I guess it's losing its status very quickly here. In fact, sugar is a poison. Because mm -hmm. anything that would inhibit the growth or burning of an organism would be a poison. Now, where's the cutoff point, Rob, from the natural sugars contained in the apple off the tree versus the apple juice? It's very simple. The apple has fiber. The juice doesn't. So that's the litmus the test right there. Is, so the, the fructose molecule is the same in both. But the difference is that when you consume the fructose molecule as part of an apple, the fiber made sure your liver didn't see it. Made sure it went further down the intestine, where instead it became the food for your microbiome instead of the poison for you. So there comes up your other mantra, which is it's not what's in the food, it's what's done to the food. Correct. And that's going to have to have us unwind a lot of the marketing content. And, and the, the food label. The food label and all the, the touting on the box of the great things that are in this box, however, how badly processed it's been. That's right. It's not what's in the food, it's what's been done to the food. And you can't learn that from the label. In fact, the only way to approach this is when you see a label on any given food, it's a warning label. <laughs> it says nutrition facts, but we can just interpret that to mean nutrition warning. Yeah. Right. Exactly right. So this is what I try to convey in the book is, you know, basically how to conduct yourself in the store, how to figure out what it is you should be eating. Okay, and why it is that every single thing you do to try to make yourself healthier backfires. Mm. So if we want to unwind things a little bit, uh, you mentioned glucose being the, the symptom, not the cause. That's I'm right. having fun with my continuous oh. glucose monitor and, uh, and enjoying it's the... levels health too. What? It looks like levels health. Oh, this is uh, NutriSense, but I, oh, it's I, NutriSense? I like the Levels okay. Health people right. too. And right. um, it's a really good uh, behavior modification device because you can right. see in real time what happens when you walk after your meal and all that great things. And I like okay. how you, uh, you mentioned exercise hitting five of the eight subcellular pathways to disease, which is better than zero. It's better than right. two, uh, but altering the diet and you, the idea that you can't outrun or out-exercise a bad diet, I think needs That's to come right. to the forefront these days. Indeed. So in the book, I talk about the eight 
subcellular pathologies that drive all chronic disease. Okay. Now these eight, I call them the hateful or the grateful eight. When they're <laughs> working for you, you'll be 110 playing tennis. When they're mm -hmm. not working for you, you'll be 40 in a wheelchair with two stumps on dialysis waiting for your uh, next stroke. Okay. And everything, of course, in between. Now, those eight pathologies belie all the chronic diseases that I mentioned earlier on in the program. But they don't have ICD-11 codes. So doctors don't know them because they're not getting paid for them. And doctors don't explain them to their patients. And there's virtually no way to figure them out, you know, from any lab tests. And there's no medicine for any of them anyway, because none of them are druggable, but they're all foodable. And that's what I explain in the book. So here are the eight. I'm going to name them real quick as we're, you know, getting ready to close here. Glycation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, insulin resistance, membrane instability, inflammation, methylation, and finally, autophagy. Now, when these eight are working for you, you'll be as healthy as anybody. When these eight are working against you, you're going to be sick as hell, right? And there's one thing that makes all eight better, real food. And there's one thing that makes all eight go south all at once, processed food. <laughs> I, I like how you say that all this fascination with fasting and and kickstarting autophagy is wonderful. But if you're have a baseline diet of real food, you don't even need to fast to enjoy the benefits. And that kind of makes sense from an ancestral perspective too, where we're we're bragging about our ancestors going all winter with no food, but the ones uh, by the ocean that figured out how to make a fishnet, they were probably eating as much as they wanted all day long for years and centuries. Uh, right. So it's a nice, you know, big picture look at everything instead of getting fixated with the details of how long your fasting period is today versus tomorrow and all that. Exactly right. Bottom line, why does intermittent fasting work? Well, it uh, probably works for two reasons. <laughs> One, it gives your liver a chance to burn off the fat that accumulated mm. from the hours before, thereby keeping your liver insulin sensitive, i.e. protecting your liver. And also because it promotes this phenomenon called autophagy, which is basically garbage night for the cell. It clears out all the dead wood, all the debris that's built up from the cell doing its job over the course of the last 24 hours. This is why we sleep, by the way. That's garbage night for the brain. Mm. It's the time when the um, brain can get rid of junk that's accumulated protein aggregates, lipid peroxidation products, defective mitochondria, et cetera. It happens while you're sleeping. So that, uh, that, that quip you made about playing tennis at 110, is that just for fun? Or do you feel like we have that potential to become the norm if we uh, figure out this diet thing? Well, if we, if we figured out the diet thing with everything else that's going on in the longevity field, no doubt we can do that. But not if we eat like we do. And what's Nothing's your personal? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and 
Boy, there seems to be a lot of hope. You mentioned the timeline of the last seven or eight years where the message is really getting out, but we're also worse than ever in a lot of those stats that you cite in the book. We, we just had the medal count on the Olympics and the USA's here and there, and then we're 37th in a really important category in the OECD. So uh, we got we to gotta sober up a little bit here, huh? Right. Exactly right. You know, Olympians, I love them. They're, they're terrific. Okay. We should all be Olympians, but we're not. Uh And it's not because we're not just, we don't have just God-given talent. It's because we eat crap. Now, to to extricate from this trap uh, by a really well-meaning person who's writing the goals on the whiteboard and and hoping they can pass by that Starbucks, uh, but in your other book, The Hacking the American Mind, you talked about the addictive properties and right. the addictive nature of all this stuff. Right. Uh, what do you um, What do you recommend as some baby steps here to to right. escape the clutches? Right. This is the cognitive dissonance. I you know, and the food industry uses it like crazy. I mean, you know, um, sugar's their hook. You know, they put cocaine in the food if they could, but they can't, so they put sugar in and also caffeine. You know, that's what because that's what's legal. So, what do you do? Well. The first thing you need to know is that 62% of the sugar in your diet is in the ultra-processed food category, and 67% of kids' diets. That's where the sugar is, 67%. So, you know, that's the category we have to deal with. Now, there's food processing, and then there's ultra-food processing. The, The difference between them, I can sum up in four simple paradigms. You have an apple, you have apple slices, mm. you have apple sauce, you have an apple pie. Which one is bad for you? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say the, the latter two, no brainer. Well, turns out the apple pie is worse than the apple sauce, but the apple sauce is worse than the apple slices. And the apple slices, believe it or not, is worse than the apple. Hmm. Okay. So every le- degree of processing takes you down that road, but it's really only that class four, that apple pie hmm. that really portends significant cardiometabolic uh, danger. All right. But that unfortunately is 90% of the food. Whew. Right. A lot of it in disguise. We know the apple pie is a a sugary treat, but when you go to Jamba Juice and look at the marketing messaging and the health bomber, yeah, super green health bomb, Right, you're looking at grams of processed sugar. That's it. So this is what people have to understand. This is what people have to embrace. And if we do, then, you know, we can get somewhere. But ultimately, the food industry has to change. And, you know, they're going to basically drive this bus till the wheels fall off. Yeah, I like your comment that there's always going to be more money than votes. So we kind of have to vote with our pocketbook and and push can into, vote with your fork. You with vote your with fork, your fork right. 21 times a week. <laughs> or less if, if inclined. <laughs> What's your personal routine? Like before we close, I'm, I'm curious. Oh, I, I never discuss it. You know, that only gets me into trouble. Yeah. I mean, you made you made a joke that you you're not standing here as an extreme fitness guy. No, um, you you no. wish you were you were not overweight or, or something of that in an interview, but um, it's I'm, uh, I, I'm just a scientist. 
I am right. not. I am not a role model. I am just a son. <laughs> I, I, you know, I understand that that doesn't mean you know I do everything right. You know, and I'm and I and I'm clear on that. I was a stress eater throughout mm. you know childhood and college and med school and really probably for the first forty five to fifty years of my life until I started figuring out what was going on. Right, and I suppose if we bring in a different level of mindfulness to our indulgences, and I talk about this a lot, I'm a, I'm an athletic guy, and I I'm promoting health and all this great stuff, but um, when my popcorn habit gets out of hand because it becomes more habitual than celebratory, I think there's a clear distinction there where even 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 Dr. Lustig is allowing us to enjoy our life a little bit, and who knows, we might see you eating a slice of cheesecake at the cafe when when things open up in the Bay Area, but um, it's it's only, a different story. Only a, only a junior's in New York City, right? You got that's the you gotta, only cheesecake worth consuming. You got to shoot for the top. Great point. Oh man, uh, everyone! I hope you go read Metabolical. Thank you so much for spending the time explaining things. The the battle that you're fighting is tremendous, and keep up the great work. Don't don't give up. Don't back down. Now you've gone oh, this far. Oh no, never, never. That's Dr. Not... Robert Lustig. Everybody, thanks for listening. Hey folks, how about a non-drinker telling you what kind of alcohol you should drink? That's right, it's pseudo-sommelier Brad Kearns here to recommend dry farm wines. Why? Because if you choose to drink, I want you to be healthy and make a superior choice to the mainstream commercial wines. Listen to my podcast with Dry Farm Wines founder Todd White. The insights were astonishing, especially that most all commercial wines are loaded with dozens of chemicals that the FDA allows in your wine, but don't have to be listed on the label. And the sugar, oh my goodness, the sugar levels can be as much or more per liter than Coca-Cola, but difficult to taste due to the acidity in the wine. Dry Farm Wines is a membership club where you're shipped hand-picked wines from old-world family-run vineyards in France, Italy, Greece, and Sicily. These wines come from non-irrigated vineyards hundreds of years old that deliver a tastier, higher antioxidant grape, and they're independent lab certified to be completely free from chemical additives and naturally 100% sugar-free. That's right, the sugar was allowed to ferment out instead of be arrested by chemical intervention in the name of pleasing the average consumer palate that has a sweet tooth. The Dry Farm Wines Club has taken off like crazy because ancestral and keto enthusiasts, people who care about their health, appreciate a sugar-free wine. You'll enjoy the variety, the taste, and the pleasant sensation in the aftermath of burning through the alcohol buzz and going on with your life without a hangover. So if you care about your carb intake and your overall health, Dry Farm Wines has a special promotion for podcast listeners. Get your first bottle for a penny when you enroll at dryfarmwines.com slash brad or click on the Dry Farm Wines at the bradkerns.com shopping page. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the show. I love sharing the experience with you and greatly appreciate your support. Please email podcast at bradventures.com with feedback, suggestions, and questions for the Q&A shows. Subscribe to our email list at bradkerns.com for a weekly blast about the published episodes and a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter edition with informative articles and practical tips for all aspects of healthy living. You can also download several awesome free ebooks when you subscribe to the email list.
And if you could go to the trouble to leave a five or five-star review with Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the shows, that would be super incredibly awesome. It helps raise the profile of the BRAD podcast and attract new listeners. And did you know that you can share a show with a friend or loved one by just hitting a few buttons in your player and firing off a text message? My awesome podcast player called Overcast allows you to actually record a soundbite excerpt from the episode you're listening to and fire it off with a quick text message. Thank you so much for spreading the word. And remember, be rad.